Hello, I'm Billy Jacobson, a partner at Allen & Overy focusing on white-collar criminal work, including FCPA defense, investigations, and compliance. This is part of a series of web chats recorded during this period of self-isolation. I'm joined today by two of my partners, Eugene Chan and Jason Gray, to discuss the impact of COVID-19 on corruption compliance risk and enforcement in Asia. Eugene is a US licensed Mandarin speaking lawyer in Allen & Overy's Hong Kong office. He practiced in the US for about a decade before relocating to Asia, where he practiced first in Shanghai and is now in Hong Kong. Jason is a US licensed lawyer who practiced in New York for a number of years before returning to his native Australia, and he's now in our Sydney office. Welcome, gents. Hi, good morning, Billy. Thank you for having us. Good to speak to you. Well, uh, guys, before we get started uh, with our corruption topics, um, please tell us how your respective cities are handling the COVID crisis. Here in the US, we, we hear so much news about um, the United States and some about Europe, but, but frankly, we get less uh, about um, Hong Kong uh, with regard to the crisis and certainly less with regard to Sydney. I have to be honest, the situation in Hong Kong right now is really not that great. Um, the coronavirus originated in our part of the world. So we've had the good and the bad of seeing a few cycles now of how the epidemic develops and then how the business community responds. I mean, if you look at even just a few weeks ago, uh, things were, I would say, almost 95% back to normal. We were all back in the office, eating out and going to the gym. I was playing volleyball. Um, and then about two weeks ago or so, we had a very sudden, uh, fairly significant flare up and the government reinstituted a bunch of restrictions. I think it's a pretty good sign that um, this epidemic is not going away easily and that you really have to be constantly vigilant or else we find ourselves in one crisis after another. Um, frankly, it's a pretty good analogy generally to clients and doing business in this part of the world. Jason? Yeah, uh, thanks, Billy. Thanks, Eugene. Um, while there have definitely been, um, I think, some missteps along the way, and while it has to be acknowledged that Australia is actually now in, in the midst, unfortunately, of a second wave, a quite significant second wave in, in certain parts of the country, uh, I, I think as a general matter, uh, Australia's response to the to the first wave, um, if we can call it that, um, is regarded as quite successful. Um, I think we've seen some, some great coordination between federal and state governments um, working together, taking a lead from the scientific, medical and public health community and, and experts uh, within those, those areas and designing a response. You know, Australia closed its borders in, in mid-March to, to foreigners um, and shortly after that there was a requirement that any Australians returning home to the country were required to undergo um, a couple of weeks of compulsory quarantine in a hotel that was paid for by the government. Um, and there's also been, I think it has to be said, you know, overall uh, a general public acceptance of, of social distancing and working from home. But I say all that, as, as I mentioned at the outset, with the caveat that we are now moving into what seems to be quite a significant second wave of the uh, COVID crisis, particularly uh, in one state, the state of Victoria here in Australia. So it is within that context that we will talk today about anti-corruption efforts, compliance enforcement, and how that those may have changed during this crisis in Asia. Uh, so Eugene, let's start with you. What have you seen by way of increased external risks to companies caused by COVID-19 uh, and the current business environment that we're in? 
Well, Billy, as I mentioned, the epidemic started in our, in our part of the world, and we've had the benefit of seeing how it developed and how the local and international business communities have reacted. Um, I, I frankly, I think a lot of our multinational clients have, over the years, reached a certain comfort level with their compliance systems and how they do business in Asia. The epidemic really turned things upside down, though, and I think it showed how vulnerable a lot of our clients may be in times of crisis. I think if you look at it this way, the epidemic really took a lot of hypothetical compliance risks and made them very real in a very sudden way. And I'll give you one example. When the epidemic first broke out and when China, Vietnam, Thailand, the Philippines, other parts of Southeast Asia were suffering quite badly, a lot of our multinational clients rallied and wanted to do something to help. And so they all had hypothetical compliance rules regarding donations and when they should be approved and how they should be implemented. But what do you do when you're suddenly in a position of having to try and use them for the first time when in this part of the world, many charitable organizations, including local Red Crosses, are government affiliated or have reputations for misconduct? Or what do you do when the government agencies you're accustomed to dealing with are asking you to direct donations in certain ways? These are issues that our clients really struggled with at the beginning of this epidemic. And I think they continue to struggle with as the epidemic wreaks havoc in other developing countries around the world now. Latin America and Africa and other markets that our clients do business in. Then when you saw the Western world start to shut down and our part of the world start to reopen, you saw essentially already highly regulated jurisdictions become almost hyper-regulated. When you need government approvals and regulator approvals just to enter your offices or to travel domestically or to allow access to open your doors to clients, and then everyone is clamoring for the limited attention of these regulators, you have an unprecedented level of government engagement and a pretty significantly escalated risk of facilitation payments and potentially other improper payments. So essentially now we're dealing with international markets with broken supply chains, scarce resources. This is compounded by the inability for our clients to travel and to engage with their teams face-to-face and it's almost the perfect storm for some kind of major enforcement action to come down once the regulators in the U.S. and around the world start to focus back on these issues. It's particularly interesting is the balance to strike between providing aid, um, charitable contributions, community payments, and so forth, versus the risk that you've identified, Eugene, which some of these organizations being less than reputable um, and not companies not being able to be very confident that the donations are getting to the places they're intended to get. How have you seen companies toe that line or walk that walk that really precarious line? I think that most of uh, the clients who've looked at these issues still try to go with the most, uh, at least most renowned uh, or most reputable um, organizations such as the Red Cross. But I will note that you know the the Red Cross in China has proven to have been involved in and, and been investigated by the government for misconduct in the past. But I think that you know when you are really limited to a few charitable organizations that are allowed to operate in China, pick the ones that are the least likely to create risk for you. So Jason, how about you? What have you seen by way of increased external risks uh, caused by COVID nineteen? Yeah, I mean, one thing that I think we're seeing across uh, many jurisdictions around the world, and this is not just the case in Asia, is that you are seeing 
government getting involved in the economy in many ways, um, including through stimulus funds, stimulus money being provided to companies and to individuals. You have government actors being much more involved in supply chains uh, and procurement activity. Uh, perhaps around um, things like sourcing uh, medical supplies, personal protective uh, equipment and that sort of a thing. And so what I think we're seeing across many jurisdictions is an increased involvement of, of government in economies and, and, and certain industries and, and supply chains where we hadn't previously seen them before. And so as we're all aware, um, you know, those increased government touch points are creating bribery and corruption risk in areas that we perhaps hadn't seen before. And Jason, sticking with you, what about internal risk? Um, how have you seen companies in Asia respond to the external risks you both have just identified and the economic yeah. slowdown in terms of compliance? It's interesting. We've definitely seen or, or heard anecdotal evidence of companies either cutting uh, legal and compliance staff or perhaps uh, withdrawing plans, expansion of headcount of legal and compliance teams. So that's one aspect of, of the response that we've seen. But another point to note is that for many companies um, that are headquartered and based somewhere in Asia, it's still not that common to have, say, a standalone compliance function similar to what you might find uh, in the US. And so what you often find is that you might have an in-house lawyer or a small team of in-house lawyers or one single lawyer wears many hats, you know, ranging from contract management, M&A, sanctions compliance, ABC compliance, antitrust compliance, and, and, and a wide variety of, of other areas. And what we're seeing or, or hearing about is that these in-house teams are being forced uh, or, or required uh, in these times of crisis to focus on the crisis that's in front of them. And that's typically not ABC compliance. So we've heard things like regularly scheduled ABC audits being put off to the end of the year or on a, a date that's to be determined. Instead of dealing with those sorts of issues, you've, you've got in-house uh, lawyers and compliance folks dealing with you know, supply chain disruptions because, say, um, a supplier is now bankrupt or, or dealing with force majeure issues in, in contracts. So, so it's not that FCPA or ABC compliance issues don't exist within the companies that we work with uh, that need to be dealt with or managed. It's just that there's a to-do list that is hundreds of items long and um, ABC compliance is not necessarily towards the top of that list uh, during this time of crisis. And we're seeing all of this happen you know, in an environment where you've got stretched management, you've still got pressure, perhaps even increased pressure to, to generate revenue. And that is in many cases uh, creating a, a bit of a perfect storm, if you like, for increased ABC risks at this time. Eugene, have you seen something similar? I was going to add, Billy, that I think that um, there's also a very, very practical challenge, which is how to conduct investigations when you can't travel and it's difficult to see people face to face. I conducted an investigation recently where we tried first over a webinar. The technology was not cooperating. And so I had to do the investigation remotely while one of my teams sat in the room. So fortunately, I at least had somebody sitting with the witness and able to see the responses and give me a better sense of how the witness was reacting to the investigation. 
it's, it's really difficult. And I think a lot of our clients are struggling with the idea of, you know, how to conduct investigations or whether to conduct them if can't get access to people or people are working from home. So I think that's a real struggle that a lot of clients are, are facing in addition to the sort of budgetary issues and, and resources and, and attention uh, that Jason highlighted. I think it's, it's a challenge that a lot of our clients are dealing with. On the other hand, I, I think a few positives for a compliance program may come out of this period of confinement that we're in, uh, particularly perhaps with regard to training and auditing. Um, I'm involved right now in a series of ABC audits for a large multinational, and we're finding that we can do it pretty effectively, that the interviews are working and that the data pulling is also working uh, pretty effectively. And it's an exercise that we may have done in person to much greater expense to the client in the past, but we're finding we can do it remotely perhaps more effectively than we expected. Uh, and so I would expect that that sort of exercise might continue to be remote, at least in some instances in the future, bringing greater cost savings to our clients. And similarly, training, electronic training or training via Zoom is certainly not as effective as live training, uh, particularly because you don't get the opportunity for people to come up to you afterwards as you're leaving the room and ask you to have coffee or something. So it may be 85% as effective, but the cost savings may uh, justify continuing this sort of thing, at least in some cases and in some companies. So there may be some positives that come out of this. I agree, Eugene, that investigations are really challenging and you may be able to effectively talk to witnesses, but folks who are considered to be targets of an investigation or even witnesses who are maybe reluctant to be witnesses, uh, that's a real challenge over video for sure. Well, Billy, some of the proactive steps that you're talking about, I think, are really critical at this point, um, you know, with the budget issues and the attention issues that Jason's been discussing. Uh, I, I can see a lot of clients thinking that this is something to, to, you know, delay or to cut back on. But in fact, I think this epidemic has really highlighted how there are vulnerabilities in compliance systems in Asia and how it's all the more important to devote more resources to training and other uh, types of proactive measures to make sure that your compliance system is rigorous and flexible and able to handle crisis situations. Now, gents, both of you, how have you seen, maybe starting with Jason, um, how have you seen governments respond to these external and internal risks that we've discussed, both in terms of legislation, perhaps, and certainly in terms of enforcement? Across the board in the region, we are seeing reduced local enforcement activity, uh, both in respect of you know, pushing on with pre-existing investigations, uh, but also starting new investigations. And, and that's in part tied into this idea or, or the fact that um, government resources are being directed to other priorities at this particular time, things like trying to support local companies and, and citizens in, in getting through the crisis. But I think it would definitely be short-sighted to say that this dip that we are seeing in activity is here to stay. We're certainly seeing the beginnings of, in some jurisdictions, some significant political pressure, for example, in some countries in the region on agencies to identify and punish, you know, any instances that are rumoured or reported uh, of corruption that could arguably have impacted government 
uh, responses to COVID-19 crisis. The other thing to keep in mind when thinking about the enforcement environment in this region is that it's actually been a very interesting time over the past two or three years to see a number of legislative changes um, and new anti-bribery and corruption laws introduced in, in various countries um, across the region. We've seen new ABC laws in the last couple of years across Vietnam, Singapore, uh, Malaysia, Thailand, India. China has, has had some new ABC laws introduced and countries like Australia, they're currently considering uh, new ABC laws. And one interesting aspect of several of those regimes is actually how closely many of those new regimes are actually endeavouring to mirror and, and almost copy the UK Bribery Act regime by introducing equivalent offences, including the UK Bribery Act Section 7 uh, failure to prevent offence for companies, with the only defence available being um, that a company had in place adequate procedures. Um, we've seen this sort of trend in, in Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand and India, and uh, Australia is currently considering a, a similar law. So we are seeing and aware of all of these new laws and tools that governments will have once we're through this crisis, uh, new tools that the governments will have to uh, investigate and prosecute violations of, of bribery and corruption laws. Eugene, anything to add to that? Billy, I would just say that, you know, I very much agree with Jason's assessment of the level of enforcement activity in the region. I mean, if you look specifically at China, enforcement cases certainly slowed down. The government is putting out a lot of fires all around the world. And so the level of enforcement generally has, has been slow. But if you, if you look at Malaysia, for instance, just in the last week, settled with Goldman Sachs, the 1MDB scandal, and issued a conviction against former prime minister for bribery and misconduct as well. So governments are, are reanimating as uh, this part of the world reopens. And it's inevitable that with these new legislative tools that Jason just mentioned, that we're gonna see more enforcement activity in the near and distant future. Well, guys, this has been a super interesting discussion and gives us a perspective that we don't often get. We'd like to end these podcasts on a personal note and hopefully a positive note, given that sometimes the circumstances can be a little more depressing than we would like for obvious reasons. So I wonder, I'd like to ask each of you, maybe starting with you, Eugene, uh, if you can think of something positive that's come out of this shutdown period. It's a little tough because I'm one of those people you read about that had the misfortune of getting separated from family and trapped by the coronavirus. Uh, I was in the process of relocating from Shanghai to Hong Kong when the epidemic hit and countries started shutting their borders. So I've basically been stuck in Hong Kong by myself for the last seven months and haven't seen family, friends, uh, my pets. And I'll say that while it's been hard, I do think the solitude has made me appreciate much more things that I often took for granted. I'm healthy, so I can't complain about that. Uh, I miss the ability to travel and the opportunity to engage with clients and colleagues directly. These are things I took for granted very much so before this epidemic, and I'm very conscious of the fact that these are things I need to treasure more going forward. Jason? Great question, Billy. In terms of the way we work, uh, you know, one of the positive outcomes, I think, is that we've, you know, most if not all of us have witnessed, and, and this applies, I think, even to the greatest skeptic, that, you know, remote working can actually work. 
um, and that the requirements of our day-to-day -day jobs can in large part, if not entirely, um, in some cases be satisfied no matter where we are in the world, um, whether that's you know working at home with your family or working off somewhere else while you're traveling when, when we can travel. And I guess on a related note to that point, the other observation I'd make is just that I, I think we've seen a lot of innovation in how things get done and, and how things can get done. I think we all know that the times of crisis can, can force innovation and adaptation. And I think uh, we've probably all seen that in truckloads. Necessity is certainly the mother of invention. Uh, and I agree with Eugene that once we get out of this period, we will relish the one-on-one -on -one actual in-person contact more than we ever did. Well, guys, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate the perspective from Asia uh, that you provided today, and we'll talk soon. Yeah.